This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It's a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. Play ball! Take me out to the podcast. Yeah. Well, you like baseball, right? <laughs> welcome. Is this the thing about you? Welcome to our podcast know. where each week one of us reads a book and tells the other person about it. And mm-hmm. I am here to tell you. I love baseball. You love baseball. You've always loved baseball. We got to you got to read one other baseball book long time ago, like eight years ago. I think mm-hmm. um, I don't remember which one that was, but Did I? it's yeah. What was that? That's a great question, and I should have looked it up before we started recording. But yeah, whenever uh, one of us gets to bring one of our like actual areas of expertise into the podcast, like that one time I talked about that computer book for an hour, I. Here's it's always it's a different it's a weird vibe for somebody on the show to be an expert about anything in particular. <laughs> Here's what was fun about that episode. I because mm-hmm. I remember it distinctly. Mm-hmm. I was in a hotel in the Finger Lakes Ooh. and Laura was asleep in the same room. Uh-huh. And I was recording a podcast, thankfully, that I about a book I had not read, so I didn't have to talk as much. Right. But you, if you mention that computer book, I can instantly picture <laughs> the dark hotel room I was in. I mean, that's like the Jane Eyre episode that we did. And I was traveling for work and I was in San Francisco and I forgot my mic. So I yep. went to a Radio Shack, which you could still do in that those days. And I bought the cheapest $20 USB microphone that I could get. And I put a sock over it and we recorded the podcast and then I took the mic back the next day and returned yes. it. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Like when I returned the sweatpants from my hamburger costume in college. Yes, like you yes. did that. Except we that have was a much more elaborate uh, teardown process. <laughs> multiple people in the chat pointing out uh, we read extra, I read extra innings for episode 52. Um, Leah is asking if we read a book called Baseball Tough. No, we did read Skateboard Tough. We Though did I read think, Skateboard Did we Tough. read a Matt Christopher baseball book? I don't think so, but I Isn't had... Isn't there one about like a magic bat or something? I read The Kid with the Glass Arm in when I was a little boy. Okay. When I was a little baseball boy. Mm-hmm. And we did read Prayer for Own Meanie, also sort of a baseball Is book. Is that about baseball? Oh, okay. We, I also read Summerland, which was that um, Michael Chabon. 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 Um, that had like baseball in it. It was a bunch and of like twi- American yeah, myths. Twilight counts as a baseball book. Whoa, Twilight so does we've, count we've as a baseball read, we book. We have read a lot of baseball books. <laughs> uh, so this is one of our bonus episodes, which means we are joined by some of our lovely Patreon supporters in the chat. If you would like to join us in the next one of these will be October, you can go Spooky. to com slash overdue pod mm-hmm. to find out more information. Mm-hmm. Um, Andrew, yes, we are talking about the book Moneyball by Michael yeah. Lewis, mm-hmm. and I wanted to talk about it not just so that I could talk about baseball, but it is an interesting. No, partly because of that, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is an interesting work of nonfiction 
And I think Michael Lewis as an author of nonfiction occupies this like interesting space. He's got an interesting bibliography that has been in the news recently. Well, he he has a so his a couple of his biggest books that you have probably heard of are This Moneyball and uh The Big Short. Yep. Which is it's and they are both books that purport to take some like uh some like dense kind of insidery topic and break it down in a way that is compelling for regular readers and usually he does that through finding a character or a couple of characters to to tell the story through yeah moneyball's case it's uh billy bean yep and in big short it's uh steve carell or i don't remember i don't remember that one guy's name Um, but that was steve Steve carell was him in the movie sure that's correct and liked uh he also wrote the blind side which we'll talk about and he wrote the other one that i know about uh that you remember that thing when like Trump became president and everyone's just like, "What are we gonna do?" Yeah, I remember people dimly, talking dimly recall about his book, "The Fifth Risk," yes. which is about the federal government and like specifically about the uh, ineptness and lack of carefulness yeah. exhibited at a few major government agencies during the Trump administration. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but you had read this book, even though you were not a baseball boy. Yeah, I read it in like 2009 or 2010. Why? I think because, because that's when I got my very first Kindle and I was trying to read more. It was like the the mm. sort of You abortive. thought, oh, I'm going to start a podcast in a few years. I should probably I didn't start even, reading. I didn't even think that. I was just like, I'm I'm traveling a little bit sometimes and I have a Kindle now and maybe I should read. Oh, there's this this movie Oh yeah, <laughs> coming out about this book about baseball. Maybe I'll try it, and I tried it and I liked it. Here's okay. So I read that was like 14 years ago. <laughs> okay, here is my here's what I think I remember the book being about, and you can tell me if it's like Ooh. how right it is. We will talk <laughs> a little bit more about Michael Lewis, but yes, I want to yes, hear will. this. I want to hear this. Uh, this is what I remember about the story of Moneyball from reading it 14 years ago and not seeing the movie. Uh, this guy, Billy Bean, is on the Oakland A's, and they have no money, and he hits upon a strategy of picking generally mediocre and cheap-to-get players who have like one or two really awesome stats and cobbling together a cheap team that is more than the sum of its parts. And then I wrote that I thought I remembered that the name of this was Sabermetrics, but I don't remember why it's called that. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, yes. what I, that's all I remember. Good job. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, there, that is basically Moneyball. Um, and what's fun is... It's also s- gone on to be a really, like, an award-winning series of video games. I'm going to just put up this, the latest title in the okay. series that uh, that has come out of this book. So that's, yeah. <laughs> so Andrew <laughs> has done a Photoshop. Mm-hmm. Andrew has gotten it he's cracked it open we, mm-hmm. I, is that our adobe license or yeah. okay i mean it's a business expense it crazy. is <laughs> that's what <laughs> and mm-hmm. andrew has made um, a reference this is for our folks at home who are not joining us on the stream um there's a there's a monkey in a ball mm-hmm. and he's rolling on what looks like a putting green sort of mm-hmm. and he's chasing a banana Mm-hmm. And it says Super Moneyball Banana Mania, which I yeah. think is actually a Sega game called Super Monkey Ball mm-hmm. Banana Mania. And Andrew's done a clever Photoshop. 
Yeah. This is just a cool joke that we've made a couple times now where we conflate the book Moneyball with the game Monkey Ball. I do like Super Monkey Ball a lot, actually. <laughs> Though I, I've seen footage of there's a Monkey Ball game for like the G, for the Game Boy Advance uh-huh. where it is woof. Like those yeah. levels yeah, are yeah. tough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so tread lightly if you have a GBA, you want to play some Monkey Ball. Yeah. But... Yeah, that that is um that's what the book is about. It's about monkeys and balls. No, you're yeah. right. Basically, it's the, the what the the appeal of this book, I think, both to Lewis when he was writing it and to people when they were reading it and going, "Wow, this is interesting," is it's a little bit of a David and Goliath story where you've got this like ragtag group of players uh who are as you said better than the sum of their parts. And you've also got this interesting central character who is taking a few decades of research and putting it into practice. And it, the other thing that I think really interests Lewis, because he's an econ guy. Uh-huh. Um, he's a numbers guy. Real Nate Silver type. Woof. He, or maybe Nate Silver is a Billy, uh, Michael Lewis type. I think that's what it is. Um mm. I think he talks a lot about the market inefficiencies in baseball. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what Billy Bean was trying to do, it is identifying something that a lot of other of his competitors are overpaying for, trying to find a way to get the thing that they're underpaying for that can help him win instead. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. What do we need to know about Michael Lewis, Andrew? Uh, Michael Lewis. All right. So I've got a uh, just a quick, like an artist rendition of Michael Lewis. Oh, OK. Please. To look at. Great. Mm-hmm. An artist. Re- <laughs> and you see, there he's got, so you, you see there he's got there. You've got the money and and then you've got the ball. And those, so those that's just. <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's money ball right there. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that's this is Michael Lewis. Uh, he was born in 1960. Uh, he's an author and journalist. Yeah, like you said, mostly he does like business and financial stuff. He's written for Vanity Fair for a long time. Um, he wrote Moneyball in 2003, The Blind Side in 2006, The Big Short in 2010. Those are all his his biggest, like most well-known books, and they've all been turned into movies. Uh, other books just include The Fifth Risk about the carelessness of federal agencies under the Trump administration. We talked about that already. Uh, the Undoing Project about a couple of like prominent psychologists whose working relationship deteriorated. Neat. And Flash Boys, uh, Wall Street Revolt, which is about high frequency trading. Oh, and, sure. Uh, well, because he was working on Wall Street. His first novel, or novel, it's all fake. Um, his first book, <laughs> well, depends on who you talk. To. That I saw was called Liars Poker, um, but that, I think that was in response to to, to Wall Street stuff. He yeah. studied art and archaeology at Princeton, and then he went to the London School of Economics. Yeah, and then yeah, then he just starts writing. I don't really, I couldn't really find any good explanation for like. And then I started writing about it instead of no, doing like, it. I don't have yeah, I don't have a ton of other like biographical stuff on him because it's just all his books and his and, and this reputation that he has that we talked about already of being a guy who is good at finding the characters in a story that make the story like more relatable and easier to to follow. Yeah, the the story he tells about this book is he had heard about this approach to baseball, which we'll get into where where it comes from and what it is. But he'd heard about it, 
And he went, he says in like the afterward to the edition that I read that he went to other teams to try and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And like nobody else had anything to say. Mm-hmm. And so then he goes back to the Oakland A's to talk to Billy Bean and basically writes a book about Billy Bean because there was no one else to write a book about. Right. Uh, and I have, I have some more stuff about Billy Bean. I don't know if you want to talk about him now or you want to talk about him in, in context. But Well, well yeah, well, I don't know. Go. <laughs> okay. Um, it is. Okay. Bean. I will I'll say okay, up top and on. then you can tell me about Billy Bean okay. is that uh, in the afterword, Lewis devotes a lot of ink to how mad baseball people got about this book. Uh-huh. Uh, people on ESPN who are former players, other owners who are like in the news being like, no, I haven't read it. I hate that book. And you're like, what are you talking about? And people going on the news saying like, well, Billy Bean wrote this book about himself. And Michael uh-huh. was like, he didn't write <laughs> he the didn't. book. He literally didn't. It's just wild. So yeah, tell me what you found about well, do you, uh, Billy do Bean. Do you want to talk about Billy Bean or do you want to talk about like criticism of Michael Lewis, which makes oh, more sense conversationally? I think we should start with the Lewis stuff. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. No, that's fine. Um, so yeah, like the biggest, like a more general thing, and you can maybe speak to this as we talk about the book. Like he's yeah. been criticized by some people for like per- perceived inaccuracies in his work, including in Moneyball. Um, a sports author named Alan Barra said, uh, from a historical standpoint, Lewis is way off base. By the end of the 20th century, baseball had achieved a greater, greater level of competitive balance than at any time in the game's history. Moneyball doesn't just get the state of present day baseball wrong. It also misrepresents the history of the sport. I don't know anything uh, about the history of the sport I disagree with that baseball, assessment. But- and it's it's worth noting that you know the baseball people hated this book, so like maybe this guy had an yeah, fair enough. That, yeah. that was you know something else. But anyway, go continue with your assessment of that assessment. Well, the the thing about this book that Lewis does not cover. Okay, so what is this book? Moneyball is a book covering the Oakland A's in two thousand and two. Andrew, do you know what A's? stands for stands for athletics yeah good job yeah did you know that that. they used to be a philadelphia team i think dimly that i've heard that before there is a there is an old logo for the athletics that is like a a white circus elephant Mm -hmm. and i believe that that comes from some talk when it was still in philly about the team basically being a white elephant like you you, it was kind of like an albatross Sure. That you wanted to get rid of. They went through Kansas City, I think, and then they went over to Oakland. All right. Um, yeah, all the way across the country, huh? Yeah. Couldn't um, couldn't get them far enough away from us. <laughs> but this book is is Lewis covering the 2002 Oakland A's. He is covering this statistical revolution um, known as what you said, sabermetrics. Uh, sabermetrics, which I'll explain in more detail for folks who might be interested. If you're not too too bad, this is the podcast. Um, yeah. It was coined, I think, by Bill James, um, who's the fa- who's regarded as the father of a lot of this stuff because it came out of the Society for American Baseball Research. Uh, okay, it stands for okay, okay, okay. Um, it's not about swords. No, but you spell it that like sucks. a sword, which is confusing. Yeah, right. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, so there are these advanced stats. People are. Beginning to understand uh, another level of baseball in with using like you know more modern computing that you can run all the stats and you can kind of make some some better uh, guesses as to what is going to happen based on past data. And Billy Bean is hamstrung 
by the low payroll available to him through A's ownership. Yeah, because um, I got I got a little bit of a history. Yeah, please. Of that wrapped up in in my the bio stuff I have about Billy Bean. Uh, he was in the eighties a. Uh, like he bounced back and forth between minor and major league, yep. but first he was on the Mets and then the twins and then the Detroit Tigers. And then, uh, to the A's, uh, bouncing back and forth between their like minor league feeder teams and the main teams. Yep. And he generally was doing like fine, but not exceptionally well. I guess his batting average was somewhere in the like 200 to three hundreds. Most of the time, it seems like he was like really promising early on and then did not, like capitalize on that or, or like follow through on that in his professional career. So he does fine for like, a, for a few years, then he gets tired of being bounced around doing minor league stuff. Then in 1990, he switches to the front office of the A's. Um, at this point, they had one of the most expensive rosters in baseball. Yep. yep. Um, and then there was an ownership change in the mid nineties and they were like, Hey, you have to cut payroll. Like you cannot be spending this much money anymore. <laughs> um, the GM, uh, general manager at the time, whose name is Sandy Anderson, was actually the first guy who was doing sabermetric stuff there, but he'd sort of mentored Bean in this, you know, the secret statistics of baseball, and Bean continued that process once he took over as GM a couple of years later, and then by the, like, mid-2000s or so, you're to the point that I, I assume the book is mostly about, where they are, like, 24th out of 30 in terms of payroll among like major league teams, yep. but they have the fifth best record in the league. So they are considered a cost effective baseball team. <laughs> and that is what is really attractive to Lewis. That's a great mm -hmm. summary, Andrew. And a lot of that is Thank covered. You. And I also just want to, oh. here's my, I got just a picture of Billy Bean that yep. I found. Um, that toe to tip, that's Billy Bean that's right there. Bean. <laughs> I can see why they cast Brad Pitt. Um, yeah, it's 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 something in the eyes. It's interesting. I'm looking at it. Billy Bean, and I had never noticed this before. He's kind of crescent shaped, uh -huh. and he's kind of red, like mm -hmm. like a kidney. Mm -hmm. um, it's probably because he actually in the book Billy Bean gets angry a lot, so maybe he gets really red like so this. He does, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's just really curved and and red and bean shaped. Yeah, it's well, you know, they Lewis probably cut a lot of that out because it wasn't relevant to his mm -hmm. approach to baseball, you, but You can see in the movie though. There's definitely That's true. Mm -hmm. I, I have seen that that is exactly why they cast Brad Pitt, very bean shaped. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, some of that is covered in the book like the uh, Lewis's interest in Bean once he's identified him as a central character is like okay, all the scouts thought this guy was can't miss. This guy is going to be amazing. He's got mm -hmm. all the tools. Do you know what the tools are, Andrew? I don't know what the tools are. I know that they, they like him and like Daryl Strawberry got brought into baseball at the same time. And they were like, hey, Daryl Strawberry, you go play on this like really little rinky dink minor league team. And Billy, Billy Bean's the guy that we want. To yeah, set up for success. And if there's one thing I know about baseball from the baseball episode of The Simpsons from like 30 years ago, is that Daryl Strawberry is a good baseball player. He is a good baseball player. Mm -hmm. Um, and the story that gets told in this book is that the scouts looked at Billy Bean and were like, "This guy's got most of the tools, if not all of them. The tools being hitting for average, hitting for Hit the power, mm -hmm. hit the ball far, uh, speed." You run fast. Run Thro throwing arm strength. Throw the ball fast. And fielding ability. And run to 
find the ball when the ball is in the air. Yeah, the fifth one is a little like if you've never really followed baseball, it can be a hard thing to kind of understand. But like some of it, you'll see it in outfielders where like when a player hits a ball to center field, like off his bat, and all of a sudden the center fielder is just like running to exactly the right space where it's going to go. Like mm-hmm. there's a guy who just came up on the Phillies, Ro- uh, Johan Rojas, um, who people making a lot of baseball as life jokes when he came up. Uh, yeah, thanks, Ted. Thanks, Ted Lasso for yeah. that one. <laughs> Um, but he has this amazing ability to like the second the ball is is off the bat, he is running full speed to where it's going to go. It's very, it makes for some very flashy plays. It also makes for some very good routine plays because he is right where he needs to be. Uh, the word that a lot of, uh, people use when people don't have that skill is that it's an adventure in center field. When a guy doesn't know where it's going to go and you watch him kind of fumble out there to figure out where it is, that's it usually say, oh, it's, it's a real adventure out there with, you know, so-and-so in center field. Um, mm-hmm. But so they, they are like Billy Bean, and this is in the book, Billy Bean is um, so amazing. We're just going to move him through the minors like so fast because all these yeah. scouts are like, yo, I saw him in high school. He was hitting like 500. Now that's out mm-hmm. of 1,000. So that's very, mm-hmm. very good. 300 is Hall of Fame level hitting. Um, they're like, oh my God, he's he's a can't miss prospect. He's so good, and so they push him up through the minors. And the way Billy Bean tells it, and the way Michael Lewis tells it, he never, he was never coached on how to deal with failure, so he never properly learned how to adjust. He was moved too quickly through the minor league system, and then he gets in his head because he's like, well, I'm so talented. Why isn't it working? Mm-hmm. And he's never been like as a player developed on how to like improve in the face of adversity. So he becomes kind of a bust of a prospect. It's very funny. There's a scene where he is on the Mets coming up with Lenny Dykstra, who went, who's, I don't want to talk about Lenny Dykstra. He's got a lot of problems, but he was the center fielder. It seems, for like, the, it seems like half of these like '90s baseball superstars oof. are like super MAGA now. <laughs> like, I, yeah, I don't want to talk about Lenny Dykstra. He was on the okay. on the Phillies World Series team in '93, and I thought he was pretty cool, but I don't think he's pretty cool now. Okay. Um, he the way is described by Billy Bean is kind of having the perfect like kind of for lack of a better word like he is sports dumb like he just. Every, he's a blank slate. Every time he steps in the batter's box, it's like he's uh, he's forgotten the last time that happened. Uh-huh. And for him, like, Bean sees that as an asset because he's never carrying his previous failure into the batter's box with him. He's like, okay. "What? Well, whatever. I could just do it. I don't mm-hmm. whatever." And Billy Bean's like, "No, I'm supposed to be amazing, and I struck out last time, and oh, I'm gonna break this chair. I'm so mad." Yeah. Uh, and so Billy Bean flames out, and. The Lewis assesses it, and I guess Bean assesses it also as like the scouts were wrong on me. They didn't know what to look for. Mm-hmm. They didn't coach me properly, and they were looking for things that are not important to winning in the first place. I just if you if you look at people who have, I don't know, like anger issues or like, yeah, I feel like so often the situation is. I was not coached in how to fail. Like that just that that explanation of why Billy Bean did not succeed is because he was like not good enough at failing just really encompasses a lot of different facets of the human experience. Oh, for, for sure. <laughs> you know, there's a reason in a lot of the the theater teaching I've done, like we emphasize that it is like about 
failure and about like, well, we didn't do it right last time. What are we going to do this time? Mm-hmm. And there is, there's an interesting, okay, baseball Leah, tangent. Leah says, I also call myself sports dumb, but probably for different <laughs> reasons. Uh, there's an interesting tangent here, and there's something I, that is not relevant to Moneyball, but is part of baseball, is there's a, oh, man, I'll get head up about this. There's a whole lot of, like, whether or not you play the game the right way, like okay. whether or not you bat flip after a home run, or whether, you know, how big are your celebrations. It is usually used by white broadcasters who used to be players uh-huh. to complain about young players of color who are <laughs> excited about their success. That is yeah. usually what it is. Uh-huh. In this book, there is one coach, I can't remember his name, who does make a better argument than I've ever heard for like why you want guys who are like cold as ice when they're playing the game of baseball. Mm-hmm. And it is just that like you're going to fail a lot. You're going to mess up a lot. You can't take that personally or else it'll get in your head and it'll ruin you as a player. Mm-hmm. Like the, there is a an approach to playing the sport that requires you to be kind of even keeled because of how many times you are going to do whatever you're going to do mm-hmm. that you can't sweat every minor like mistake. That is different from... Be, be a from, goldfish. You, you, yeah. Be a... <laughs> <laughs> that that is different from let like whether or not players get to have fun when things are going well. But mm-hmm. I, I I made a note as I was reading that where it was like, oh, I've never I've never seen this before where someone made the good case for it. But okay, um, so yeah, Billy Bean's story as a player, a failed player who is uniquely positioned in his own life story to like take on a different approach to baseball mm-hmm. that is different from what all the scouts and all the old boys say is really what Lewis is is kind of putting forth. He's going to disrupt the space. Yeah, he's really into into a into a disrupting mindset. Mm-hmm. Um, but as you said it's also one born out of scarcity like he does not have the money to compete on right. the So the other thing that Lewis puts forward is all of these pressures started when uh, the free agency system was born in the 1970s when players could actually like leave the teams they were with to go get more money paid more yeah like that was not a given when baseball started and that was a thing that you know the court system had to allow players to do yeah right and so the book has this stat where in 1973 George Steinbrenner, owner of the Yankees, is paying $10 million for the entire Yankees. Mm-hmm. Now that after a few years of free agency, he is spending like $4 million on one free agent pitcher mm-hmm. because the owners actually have to like pay up. Pay people what they're worth? Weird. Yeah. That's weird. It's weird, right? And so... It's so weird for courts to do something that yeah. like that sides with labor ever about anything. It's I, yeah. Very okay. strange. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, we're nowadays just to, for people who don't follow this stuff super closely nowadays, the, the, the thinking is that uh, if you go on strike, your company should be able to sue <laughs> you, sue you for damages. <laughs> Unbelievable. <sighs> yeah. Wonderful. Um, 
What does Lewis say? He says, a few years ago, no one thought twice about bad calls on prospects, but what used to be a $1,000 mistake was rapidly becoming a million-dollar one. Mm -hmm. So Lewis is saying, and he's looking at like what Bean is doing, and he's like, listen, all these teams that are like spending gobs of money, they're doing it on proven players who are... Uh, doing like the traditional like the traditional markers of baseball success and the Billy Bean and the Oakland A's cannot compete with that because they don't have the money to, to slosh around mm-hmm. and Sandy Anderson has cottoned on to a bunch of research done by Bill James and a bunch of other people that Lewis cites in the book that says guys we might have been playing baseball wrong this whole time mm-hmm. is we you don't need to hit the ball a lot. You just yeah. need to get on base. Mm-hmm. And this is a thing that is like unique to baseball. The reason that baseball has so many weird stats. Mm-hmm. Laura likes to make fun of me for it all the time. Oh, me too. Don't don't like give me short shrift. I'm always making fun of these weird baseball stats. It's the it's the whole no one has ever hit the ball that way against a guy like that on a Tuesday yeah, in September. Yeah, on a September. Tuesday with the wind blowing from the southeast at three miles an hour. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Baseball is uniquely designed to create stats like that because each pitch is like a discrete event. So you can then look at all the things that happen. And then you can write it all down and you have all of the circumstances. Um, you, don't, you can't do that in football. There's 22 people moving. You can't do it in basketball. There's 10 people moving all the time. Um, so I, who is like, who is responsible for the, the scrolls of ba- like the, the IBDB, like the internet baseball database, like whatever. <laughs> yeah. Whatever repository of all this dumb information that they use and then can cross reference. Like who is who? is in charge of that air table. <laughs> so there is the Elias Sports Bureau. I don't know when they were founded. This book talks about some guys in the 80s who started like com- digitizing all of these box scores. I don't know if that's the same people as RetroSheet because that was another thing that cropped up. Okay. Um, the book spends more time talking about uh, this guy. What is What is his name? Oh, God. I wanted... Oh, Henry Chadwick back in 1858, who invented the box score, who was mm-hmm. like, I like cricket. What's this new baseball thing? I think I'll come up with all the stats and write them down. Cheerio. Nora says uh, IBDB is the Broadway database. That is true. <laughs> Nora's right. Um, these days, I would go to something like Baseball Reference, which, as I understand it, was like a math nerd's thesis project and now is like a thriving business that everybody uses. Is that also like a fandom, like fandom-owned wiki, or is that something? <laughs> no, it's way better than a fandom wiki. Okay. Um, but somewhere around the like widespread availability of computing power people started digitizing every game so that they could draw conclusions from it the first there was an article i was reading about this book it's not in the book that talks about how one of the first guys to attempt a computer model for baseball was actually a player on the orioles I think it was Davey Johnson, where he was like, I need to convince my boss to let me bat second. I'm going to run a bunch of models in the computer so that I can do that. Um, but then it, then it kind of takes off. So like that is, that is Lewis's other thesis, is that you've got guys like Bill James in the 70s 
doing a bunch of research on baseball statistics and then you've got increased and more widely accessible computing power starting in the 80s and 90s so that people who are interested in this kind of stuff can then take it and run with it. Um, and that is colliding with this like, well, how much are we actually spending per every baseball win mm-hmm. that is useful to us that arrives at the Oakland A's? That's how we get there. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know. Where do you want to go next? Do you want to talk about like how the what is happening in the book? Do you want to talk more baseball? I so I assume I have a lot that, of notes and I don't yeah, know no, where to go fine. next. <laughs> I assume that when baseball guys got or get mad about this book. And my, mm. my understanding now is that Moneyball is kind of a baseline, like for how a lot of teams recruit players. I don't know if that's Correct. still true. Yep. I know it was true at one point. But people who complain about how this book ruined baseball, are they mostly just like, everything should be a wonderful, surprising mystery, and the game is more fun if we endeavor to know like less about less about specific like the specific nuts and bolts or like what's the what's the main argument? The the portrait that's painted in the book is there are a lot of scouts who for what is oh, there's a really good so the first people that fall to the blade of sabermetrics in this book <laughs> are the scouts. There's a long uh-huh. scene, it's very memorable from the movie, where um Billy Bean is running this 2002 amateur draft. This and, again, just a quick that's Billy Bean. Yeah. And he yeah. and his right hand man, John de Podesta, um, Paul de Podesta, excuse me. Now, John, John nope, I'm not, Podesta nope, is another. Sorry. Whoops. <laughs> John Podesta is a guy who doesn't know how to avoid uh, phishing email emails. Links. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul de Podesta, um, they have ideas about which players are valuable. Largely, as expressed in the book, they are interested in what is called on base percentage, particularly players who know how to take a walk. Um, I love taking walks. Love taking walks. Funny fact about Henry Chadwick, our friend from the 19th century, when he created the walk as a stat, he mostly viewed it as an error of the pitcher. Oh, you couldn't get the ball across the plate like a doofus? So then over time, the walk becomes a thing that a player can actually attempt to create by like mm-hmm. not swinging at bad pitches. Mm-hmm. And the research from Bill James in the 70s and 80s is like, all you need to do is get on base. All of this stuff about stealing and bunting is just giving up one of the 27 outs that you have in a baseball game. All you should be trying to do is get on base at any whatever way you can, walk, hit by pitch, yada, yada, yada. And he ran a bunch of numbers that were like, the teams that score the most runs ha- like are the teams that have higher on base percentages. And so... Bean and De Podesta in this draft scene are like ranking guys that the scouts are like, those guys are, I don't know if you've seen this guy. He's got a bad body. Like this guy does not have a baseball body. <laughs> Same. And De Podesta's got like all the college stats on his computer. And he's like, this guy knows how to take a walk. Like we need this catcher. Like, come on mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And the way that Lewis says it, in the scouts view, 
You found a big league ball player by driving 60,000 miles, staying in 100 crappy motels, and eating God knows how many meals at Denny's, all so you could watch 200 high school and college baseball games inside of four months, 199 of which were completely meaningless to you. Most of your worth derived from your membership to the fraternity of old scouts who did this for a living. The other little part came from the one time out of 200 where you would walk into the ballpark, find a seat on the aluminum plank in the fourth row directly behind the catcher, and see something no one else had seen, at least no one who knew the meaning of it. Mm-hmm. So, like, the first people that are falling by this computer revolution have, like, a sunk cost fallacy of their whole scout culture mm-hmm. that is like, oh, I can tell what a good baseball player is by looking at Just him. Just by looking at him. And I got to yeah. see all the games and all the, all the places and all the world, and it just sounds very... Anything you could do to make that process even marginally more efficient so that like five out of 200 games instead of one out of 200 result in like a usable baseball prospect probably sounds pretty appealing. There's another thing that that, uh, I think it's Dipodesta says where it's like if you went to baseball games regularly, if you were like a, you know, even if you were a season ticket holder, the odds that you could tell a 300 hitter who gets on who hits the ball one out of every three times from a 250 hitter one every four times is pretty low unless you literally saw every game like just by mm-hmm. looking at his swing what do you what do you even know so the only thing that matters to these guys is like large buckets of stats and data that you can crunch and used and use to predict future performance mm-hmm um, so this whole draft scene in the book is about being advocating for players that other teams think are kind of ridiculous. Um, what's funny about this in in like in the broad view of history is that I have never heard of the six or seven guys that they really prioritize in this draft. <laughs> um, one guy, the catcher who has the bad body, like never made it out of the minor leagues. Mm-hmm. He does really rave about a pitcher named Joe Blanton who was like the fourth or fifth starter on the Phillies World Series team in 2008 and it is funny to me to watch someone just be so excited about him because I was like he's fine he helped us get there because I bet some of so this is just me guessing based on nothing but I assume that part in the pre-moneyball days part of what you're doing when you're scouting is maybe also like you're going to be drawn to somebody who has like a, like a a visible personality or some kind of like physical thing that is going to make like them as a person more of a, more slightly more of an icon or a celebrity or something. Whereas when you break every human being down into an Excel spreadsheet, like maybe you're not going to get like individual people who the fans want to follow around quite the, as much. The I don't other, know if that's, I don't know if there's anything to that, but that's just, that's just what comes to my mind. S- no, that's not a bad idea. The story that's told here is not that scouts are scouts and development front office people. Cause there's another story that comes up later in the book. That's relevant here. It's not that they are thinking about marketability, right? It's actually yeah. that they are thinking about like, if you're too quirky, they don't want you. Cause they don't, mm-hmm. they don't know that you're going to be coachable or they don't know how to coach you. So the it takes about two thirds of the book for pitching to come up, which I found kind of weird. Why Be- is that weird? It just feels like the I guess part of it is like the whole philosophy of this um, roster building approach is that your you know your offensive players play every day, 
and you want guys who have a high on base percentage. So it doesn't really matter if they can field. It just matters if they have a sense of the strike zone. And that means like taking walks, but that also means like only swinging at good pitches. There's a lot of ink spilt on this guy, Scott Hatterberg, who like burned out with the Red Sox, was kind of older coming back from an injury. And the A's were like, yeah, but you have a great command of the strike zone. So we're going to make you a first baseman, even though you never played first base. And we're going to put you in as often as we can. Cool, Mm -hmm. cool, 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 cool. Two thirds of the way through the book, it's like, yeah, also they had really good pitchers. Um, (laughs) They had this. But then instead of talking about, and this is one of the critiques of the book, he spends very little time, Lewis, talking about the trio of amazing starting pitchers that the A's had. Tim Hudson, mm-hmm. um, who is it? Oh, God. It's Tim Hudson, some other guy I don't know, <laughs> and a guy whose name I'm forgetting. While uh, you are remembering that name, I am going. So we have some people who joined the chat late. I'm just going to make sure that they know who we're talking about. So Michael Lewis, the author of the book Moneyball, again, looks like this. Yeah, thank you. Uh, this is kind of his whole deal. And then uh, Billy Bean, who is the... He's the general manager. The general manager of the team that we're going to be talking about. He, this is what he looks like. This is a sort of a, an image of him that I found. Yes, correct. Um, Yeah. Um, So again, talking about the book Moneyball, uh, you might be more familiar with the video game franchise that spawned. Uh, Here's the latest game in that. All right. Did you find the guy? All right. Yeah, I did. Um, Mm -hmm. Barry Zito, um, Tim Hudson. I think it's Mark or Mike Mulder. Um, they're only mentioned 32 times in the book. This I found from a 538 article called If Billy Bean is Done with Baseball, He's Left an Indelible Mark from 2020. I think it was when Bean was leaving the A's. Uh, and he talks about how Zito, Hudson, and Mulder have like unbelievable amounts of what is called wins above replacement. They have the third most pitching wins above replacement in baseball. And wins mm-hmm. above replacement is a very fancy formula that came about kind of after this book um, where there's, there's different formulas depending on which website you like, but it all puts into a bunch of different performance. Like in your historical context, how many wins are you adding to your team? Um, and from 2000 to 2003, Oakland has the third most pitching war in Major League Baseball, including these three guys. They barely factor into the book, and Michael Lewis instead spends a bunch of pages talking about this guy, Chad Bradford, who's a relief pitcher. (laughs) with Chad Bradford. Chad Bradford, he's a relief pitcher from the South. He has a very unique underhand delivery that we call submarine pitching. I don't know if you've ever seen a submarine pitcher, Andrew. Never seen submarine pitcher, but I'm more of a a Brad Chadward guy, so I don't really know. I don't know about... So when oh, you're no, doing, I don't know if people, up. I don't know if people on the stream can see, but usually when you throw a pitch, you throw it over your shoulder, right? Uh huh. No, so Chad very, Bradford, mm-hmm. he kind of started as like a sidearm guy, uh-huh. and he kind of comes around like this, mm-hmm. and then at some point in his career when he was struggling, he just kind of dropped it lower, and so mm-hmm. he's actually like kind of throwing it underhand. Okay. Like, but he's throw, but it's like a full arm motion. I was almost as if he was standing upright, just upside down. Okay. So it feels like the ball is like rising to meet you, which mm-hmm. makes it kind of difficult to hit if you've never seen him before. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't throw like ninety nine miles an hour. He throws like eighty five, but it feels faster because his release point is closer to you. 
okay. because he's actually like, you know, because of the way his body moves. Mm-hmm. The book spends a lot of time talking about Chad Bradford <laughs> and how the White Sox didn't know what to do with him because he had this unorthodox delivery. And that's great. The A's picked him as a reclamation project. He was one of their better relievers. But one of the things that this book leaves out is <laughs> Leah how... Says. Leah says it looks more like a submersible pitch to me. It's only a submarine pitch if it can move under its own power. <laughs> That's very good. Mm-hmm. That's very good. Okay. Um, but it spends a lot of time talking about Bradford because for Lewis, Bradford mit- fits the mold of the like Island of Misfit Toys nature of the Oakland A's in 2002. Of course, over the course of this book, they win over 100 games they break the record for consecutive wins. I think they win like 20 games or something like that. Mm-hmm. They do it at home. It's, you know, it's very exciting, all this kind of stuff. Um, but they had literally one of the best pitchers in baseball, Barry Zito, wins the Cy Young that year. And Miguel Tejada wins. What's Cy Young? Is the that Cy Young good, Award? Good baseball trophy? The Cy Young Award is awarded to the best pitcher every season. It's voted on, okay. I think, I don't think it's voted on by the players. I think it's voted on by the reporters and journalists or whatever. So who knows what they know. But um, <laughs> the, the Cy Young goes to Barry Zito, who's barely a part of this book. And Miguel Tejada. More like, more like barely Zito. Right? Miguel <laughs> Tejada wins the MVP award. Um, you know what that stands for, Andrew? No. Most Valuable Player. Oh, yeah, I didn't know that. Okay. I just wanted you to tell everybody else. Not mostly vegetable pizza. It is yeah. most valuable mm-hmm. player. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he, in the book, barely gets a, any like time covered. Mostly Billy Bean is upset at him for swinging at too many pitches. Dude mm-hmm. hit over 300 that season and wins the MVP award for how good he is. And the book is like, I think it's really about these kind of ragtag guys that Bean found and like used this alternative method of roster construction yeah like if, if there is one and, and maybe this is where we talk about the blindside stuff it does sometimes seem like lewis can get tunnel vision and maybe like yes. ignore or under explore aspects of the story that would undercut the narrative that he's that he's trying yep. to tell and i'm not saying that he that it's always like a, an intentional nefarious thing but um it's been so in the news recently uh, if you if you have not read the book The Blind Side or seen the movie The Blind Side, it is about. I mean, what what it's about is this development in the game of football where, like one like line, one 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 line person lineman I guess because women don't play football. Yeah, but um, suddenly takes on elevated importance because it becomes really crucial that they not be able to like have all of their bones shattered as people try to get to the quarterback. <laughs> um, that's my understanding of it anyway. But it, the, the, that tale is told through the lens of this uh, family, the Tuies, and this guy is it Michael Orr or yeah. Michael Orr. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's a, he is a black player. He's like, comes from, you know, an unprivileged background. He is, taken in by this family and like they, they raise him as their own. And then he goes on to become this big, like all-star linebacker guy. And it's just a very uh, inspiring story about what happens when you give people like the resources they need to succeed. Yes. Yeah. Like that's the, that's, that's the popular kind of the gist of it. Of yeah. 
so recently it has, you know, it, it's been alleged by or that um, the Tuies, the the family who took him in, like did it under the ages of like this conservatorship. They yep. they led him to believe that they were like adopting him, but he says that it's actually more of a conservatorship, which gives them greater flexibility to like not share uh, their resources, their finances with him. And he alleges that they have gotten all this money from all the stuff related to the blind side, like not just whatever they got out of the book or out of the movie, but also like the entire, like, so, so I'll say Michael Lewis's defense of the Tuies is like, he says, we all collectively got like $600,000 from this movie that made half a billion dollars um, before taxes, which was split 50, 50 between me, Michael Lewis and the family. And my understanding is that the family's half was evenly split between all of them, including or, but Michael Lewis does not. He, I was, I looked up one YouTube video of the Tuies to find out how to pronounce their name. Yeah. And from that one, two minute YouTube video, I learned that they have got multiple like inspirational self-help books. They do like lecture circuit stuff. They do, uh, they speak at like conferences and like they, they have this big, uh, this, this amount of fame that comes from being like the subject of this book and this like Oscar winning movie. Um, and Lewis just kind of doesn't address that. And it's a, a criticism of that book is that it comes out in the author's note at the very end that Lewis and Sean Tui, the guy, the, the main guy in the book have been like friends since Sean college. He, and so there's yeah. a, there's an LA times review of the book that was pretty scathing. Um, uh, Here's just a, a quote from that review or recognizes the ulterior motive swirling around him. He didn't go so far as to treat Lee Ann with suspicion. This is a quote from the book. As Lee Ann put it with me and Sean, I can see him thinking if they found me lying in a gutter and I was going to be flipping burgers at McDonald's, would they really have had an interest in me? The question is never answered. As I toured through the book, I kept wondering how Lewis got such remarkable access to the Tuies, and I also wondered why does he take such an uncritical view of their role? The author's note at the end provides the obvious explanation, stating that Lewis is a friend of Sean Tuies and that they had been longtime classmates at the same New Orleans school. So, like, I don't know what my point is exactly, except that Lewis is as subject to, like, tunnel vision and, and subjectiveness as anybody and yeah <laughs> and it does it is it does kind of it's too bad to see him get asked about this situation with michael Orr and all this this money that he's supposedly not been given and his takeaway in the in the interview that i read with him was like i really i feel bad for him for harboring these bad feelings toward yeah. these people who have given him so much like it's it's not Yep. It's still very uncritical of, of their role. And so when you say, I'm not surprised at all to hear that Moneyball has some people it's interested in and some people it's not interested in. And their worth to the story is mostly determined by like how much they fit into the story that Michael Lewis wants to tell and less so like how much they contributed to the actual success of this like sabermetrics Moneyball system. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And there's that's kind of why I want one of the things I was interested to talk about with this book is like, it is also a kind of frozen in Amber depiction of this team. I feel like I've maybe done a bit of a bad job 
explaining what literally happens in the book because people in the chat are like <laughs> graham says i'm horrified we're an hour into this and i have no idea if we're discussing the book still or just baseball <laughs> now, that is kind of a common pitfall of the show when we're covering nonfiction, right so i'll just I'll, I'll acknowledge that right away is that we're kind of eliding talking about what the book is covering with talking about the book itself so mm-hmm. like what what is the book the book opens with him talking about the 2002 Oakland A's. The A's are this very successful team, uh, and they have done so under this general manager, Billy Bean, who has recruited people and is interested in a different approach to baseball where he he attempts to buy low on undervalued skills within the baseball market. You know, players who are very good at on-base percentage it's not really important if they are good at base running or if they are good at hitting or I guess hitting, but if they are good at fielding, at least as the book tells it, it is all about getting on base. It is a thing that the research uh, shows and the scouts are resistant to. So we are bucking trends. That is what is interesting to Michael Lewis. We get a series of player portraits, folks like uh, Hattinger, folks like Chad Bradford, uh, players who do not fit traditional molds of success that Billy Bean has put into positions of success because he is someone who was supposed to be successful and everyone was wrong about him or he mm-hmm. just didn't live up to it. So it is about like finding uh, utility and finding success in players that people have discarded and how Bean is, is particularly interested in that. And then it is also about the story of the people like Bill James, like, excuse me, Andrew, Voros McCracken. Sure, which is the name of a Pirates of the Caribbean squid pirate, if I remember yep. correctly. A guy named Voros McCracken, mm-hmm. who ran a whole bunch of statistics and discovered, quote unquote, discovered that most pitchers are not in control of what happens after the bat touches the ball. Like, yeah. Uh, that seems like a pretty natural supposition to to me to make. Yeah, but there's like this whole idea that like, well, with if you have the right type of pitch, and so then like the next step after McCracken kind of invents this thing called defense defense independent pitching systems, where you look at different stats to say like, well, a pitcher is really only control of whether or not he walks the guy by throwing four balls out of the strike zone whether or not he strikes him out by throwing three strikes or whether or not he gives up a home run. McCracken's like, that's the only thing the pitcher can truly control. Everything else is like up to the fielders. So if you're trying to evaluate a pitcher based on these old-timey stats like earned run average, you're doing a bad job because the pitcher actually isn't in control of what happens after the ball leaves the bat for the most part. Mm-hmm. And... The, the next step of that is you start evaluating whether some pitchers are better at inducing ground balls or giving up fly balls and, and, and things like that. Um, so that's the, the book does a pretty good job. And Lewis says in the afterward, he's like, I tried to show all my work of all the other people that came before Billy Bean. I just thought Billy Bean was an interesting character who put it all into, into action. Okay. Um, something that the book doesn't have an answer for. And then I don't think that actually any research has a real answer for is that the A's never won a World Series under Billy Bean. Mm-hmm. Um, 538 attempted to quantify how many World Series they should have won, and it was like 1.4 or something. Okay, like just like statistically based on... Yeah, 
But, okay. And that th- again, that is all the stuff that comes out after Moneyball is you start to have these large models where you can plug in a whole bunch of historical data and say, this is what probably should happen. Andrew, no, I mean, errors- that's kind of what happens when you're trying to put together a baseball team that like prioritizes financial efficiency, right? Yep. Is like, you're probably going to do pretty good, but in terms of like following sports, who remembers or cares who the fifth place team in the league is like nobody. <laughs> no, it's true. Like you probably, your, your games are, are better attended if you have a win record good enough to be fifth place instead of like 17th place. But in terms of like the historical record, who cares? Who cares? You know? For sure. Yeah. What What is interesting about Billy Bean it's not really covered in this book because it's a bit of a historical lens thing is you've started to see more teams do what is called rebuilding Mm -hmm. uh, or in basketball parlance, trusting the process where Mm -hmm. you lose a bunch sort of on purpose, or you just like don't get better on purpose so that you can get a bunch of draft picks being in every interview I've read with him. And as he's depicted in the book, always wants to win he just doesn't have as much money it's not Mm -hmm. that he is like deliberately being bad and most of the time he's not he's not fielding bad teams he's actually just making a lot of trades he's drafting well he is picking interesting players but then never signing them to long-term deals Mm -hmm. he just has a shrewd eye and a good team like a good like front office staff for finding useful players that he can use like I, I saw a stat that was like pitchers on the A's over the last several years or over Billy Bean's tenure had the shortest tenure on a team compared to every other team because he just would he didn't have the money to sign anybody to long-term contracts yeah and, and I do wonder guys. like ta- talking about again the criticism of this book and what it did to baseball being mostly about sort of ineffable like vibes based things sure I do wonder if it does anything to your team dynamic when you just know that like nobody that you're on the team with has been around for very long is going to be around for very long. Like I'm I'm sure there are plenty of players who are just like, yeah, I'm going to go wherever they pay me the most money. I don't really have any particular loyalty to a team or a town or whatever, but that's probably not true of like every, everybody on every team, you know? (laughs) Well, no. And it's interesting to read this book that uh, the frozen and amber part of it that I think is also relevant to the blindside discussion is that that book freezes that man, Michael Ower in Amber. Like that is that record of that guy at that time. He has, I think written two books since then, at least sure. of his life mm-hmm. that attempt to kind of like move the narrative of his life forward. Um, you know, he's had a lot of lived experiences since that book came out and what this book, does is kind of like freeze Billy Bean and the 2002 A's in a little bit of amber and say like, well, this is what Moneyball was at this time. What it isn't equipped to do and what is fascinating reading it as a baseball fan 20 years later is like the amount of absurd data that we have about what is going on on a baseball field now Mm -hmm. would blow those people's minds. (laughs) In 2015... Major League Baseball instituted something called StatCast, where they're using weird... Sounds like a cool 538 podcast. They're using weird cameras. I don't know how they do it. 
mm-hmm. that are literally probably drones. If it's if it's a camera and you can't explain how they're doing it, it's probably drones. drones. Okay, <laughs> they're tracking literally everything that happens on the baseball field at all times, uh-huh. and that includes things like the spin rate of the ball leaving a pitcher's hand, uh-huh. to the exit velocity of the ball leaving the bat, mm-hmm. um, to the launch angle of the bat as it collides with the ball. And all of these things, like I, I saw something that was like, in 2015, the first game that had StatCast, 90% of all baseball data ever had been recorded in that game because of the amount of like just points of data that they had uh-huh. collected. Mm-hmm. And so what this book is a foundation for is the modern front office, which many teams have now. Uh, Billy Bean, I think in like 2018 or 2019, gave an interview where he's like, yeah, all the teams caught up to us. Like, they're all hip to this. They all have... Even the teams that spend lots of money are now also spending that money on smart people who are just like econ majors from Harvard who like baseball a lot. Yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing about... Some kind of gaining some kind of a strategic or, or like technical technical edge is like eventually people are going to cotton onto it and it's going to be the new normal instead yeah. of like this unique thing that you're doing. This is the this is a story about the unique thing that a few guys did 20 years ago. And then now to look at the the like upside of that kind of stat stuff is that you see players have more access to it. Um, so you'll see a player in the dugout during a game, like looking at an iPad, like kind of getting info on what was going on with their at bat. The thing. Are you that, sure it's an? Are you sure it's an iPad? I Craig, don't know if it's a Microsoft Surface because definitely the NFL use Microsoft a Surfaces. Deal with yes. Microsoft to use Microsoft Surfaces, and everybody kept calling them iPads. And Microsoft said, "You have to ask people to stop calling them iPads." I remember that. <laughs> um, so like the interesting uh, uh, Beth asks actually uh, an interesting oh, question. Uh, do the baseballs have GPS trackers in them like the World Cup balls? No, they do not. They use okay. I think they use a technology that is similar to what tennis uses. Tennis, I think it's called eagle eye, or or mm-hmm. at least it was, which is kind of laser based. Ooh, um, lasers! I think things cooler with lasers. I think if they were putting GPS trackers in the baseballs. Uh, that would factor into the fact that Major League Baseball has definitely been doctoring the baseballs in the last few. They've been like juicing them to make okay. more home runs happen. <laughs> okay. uh, there, there's been some. There are some astrophysicists who have been collecting baseballs and like evaluating their like squishiness coefficients <laughs> and like gonna evaluate my own squishiness coefficient. Like there's a whole bunch of stuff. But the thing is that Major League Baseball will not be forthcoming about the fact that they did this. They will lie and say that they didn't. And you can collect baseballs through certain parts of the last five seasons and be like, oh no, this is when they introduced the bouncy baseball to make some more home run happen. There's there's a lot of, there's a conspiracy theory that they did it last year when Aaron Judge was trying to set the the home run record. Like it's just there's a lot of capitalist market forces on baseball that this book covers the like, how do we spend as little money as possible? And there's a lot of money earning stuff that is going on in terms of like home runs and in terms of baseball being in bed with sports betting now and all sorts of stuff that is just sticks in my craw. I mean, and if, also, if you're talking about late stage capitalism, like yeah. nightmare stuff, you put yeah. GPS in the baseballs and there's going to be somebody from the MLB coming up to a little 10 year old's house and knocking on the door and being like, hey, that foul ball is the property of Major League Baseball. And I'm going to need, yeah, I'm going to need you to give it back to us. Yeah. This is our ball and you stole it. 
It's wild. Yeah. What is Moneyball to me? <laughs> it is interesting. So, like, and this is maybe something I meant to say at the beginning of the podcast. Like, I was very into baseball as a kid. Played Little League. The Phillies went to the World Series in 93. I was seven years old. It was mm-hmm. very exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, then the strike happened. And I don't really remember. Strike. I don't like really that? remember how I felt about baseball in the mid nineties. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I definitely the Phillies had a fallow period in the two thousands, in the early two thousands. <laughs> that yes, I was exclusively just like, not, con- like exclusively confined to the early two thousands. I was just not following the team then. <laughs> oh yeah, they're one of the losingest teams in baseball history. That's very true. Um, I was just not following baseball then. I was like wrapped up in extracurriculars at school, and the team was bad and whatever. I started getting back into baseball when we were in college, like mm-hmm. having met some other friends who were also into baseball. Then the Phillies got good again. Then they were, they won the World Series the year we graduated from school. Mm-hmm. I was getting into fantasy baseball that I've played a bunch of. Um, and then now they're also good again, and it's kind of fun. And so it is interesting. One of the things that happened in those 15 years of me being back like with baseball again is all of the sabermetric stuff that comes out of Moneyball had already happened. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm reading baseball blogs in 2009 that are talking about all of the advanced stats that are covered in this book as if they are, like, brand new inventions. Um, things like on-base percentage, things like slugging percentage, which is, like, if a guy hits a double, that's, like, 500 out of 1,000. Like, a home run is 1,000. And so it's a measure of how valuable your hit was, whereas batting average is just like, did you hit the ball or not out of every 10 tries or or Mm -hmm. whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. Um, So some of the stats that they're talking about in this book kind of feel like child's play compared to modern baseball writing, which is like, well, we ran a computer to analyze what happens when a guy hits the ball to that part of that stadium at that launch angle and if that happens, his expected batting average is so and so, but he got out. So, blah, 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 blah. And like the advanced stats at this time are so deep in the weeds mm-hmm. that I think it's kind of wild to think about how far we've come. And it, it, it does make this book feel a little bit like a relic in that regard. Guard. I, I don't right, know. It's just, it's just the first the, the first step down a, a path that we are many, many miles down at this point, it sounds like. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And it is also just I don't know if you have an analog in the tech world or just like the other thing that comes up in this book is just like ruthless market efficiency. Like mm-hmm. what how can we identify a thing that other people aren't doing well or that they're overpaying for? And what if we did only that thing that we had attached value to and we wound up doing well? Mm-hmm. And that that feels like you can find versions of it that have ruined some of our favorite things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like just full on late capitalism awfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, but as presented here, it's just like novel success. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I can't think of exactly that thing. There is a... I can't say the word on a clean podcast, but there is a concept uh, that uh, Corey Corey Doctorow came up with about like social networks specifically, but I think it expands to most tech products where uh, a tech product starts by centering its users. It gets a bunch of users and then it 
begins to center its advertisers as those advertisers try to capitalize on those users. And as the user experience deteriorates and people start to leave, the experience gets worse and worse as the companies try to squeeze the people who are left for everything that they are worth. And that is, I mean, if you use a modern version of windows and you wonder why you're seeing like six advertisements for OneDrive or whatever in a, in a week, sure. Or like you restart after an update and it's like, are you, you, maybe you want to use Bing. I don't know. I just think I heard Bing's pretty cool. That is all that at work. It, It is all capitalism, like making things worse so that some company that is already worth more than any company has ever been worth in the history of humanity can make a little bit more money at the margins. And it's just, it is maddening. So is that like what you're talking about at all? It is sort of complaining about things because like the other thing that happens in baseball as a sport, and this is not a, this is not relevant to the, like the money problems of like owners who clearly have more money than they're willing to spend or the labor problems of like the union trying to get that money to the players even though some of the contracts are very astronomical the like players on the bottom need to be earning more um the that ruthless uh pursuit of efficiency and of um we've found an outcome that is positive let's pursue it at all costs has like in games that can kind of turn into min maxing where like there's a player on the, on the current Philadelphia Phillies team, Andrew called Kyle Mm -hmm. Schwarber. That is his name. He's called that. And he is what is called a three out, a three true outcome player. Most of the time he either walks. (laughs) That sounds like some homeopathy stuff, but sure. He will either walk, he will strike out or he will hit a home run. Mm hmm. Like sometimes he will get a hit and end up on base, but that is very rare mm-hmm. because he has a very good command of the strike zone, but he's only ever trying to hit home runs or he strikes out. That is that is like that is a skill set that has been refined, that has been honed because that has been proven to to be successful in the sport of baseball. But as an as a an entertaining game that can get a little boring. Mm-hmm. So you saw a bunch of rules that cropped up here in 2023 that were a result of the last um, contract negotiation where they made the, they literally, they made the bases bigger. Mm-hmm. They instituted a pitch clock uh, and they banned what is called the defensive shift. So now if you think about it, uh, the way that players are aligned on a baseball diamond, Andrew, you have the third baseman and the shortstop on one side and you have the second baseman and the first baseman on the other side. Mm-hmm. For years, especially over the last 15 years with advanced data, you would start to see three fielders on one side of second base to accommodate a player who would pull the ball a lot. Mm-hmm. And baseball is like, I don't know, we kind of want more people on base. We're going to make a rule that that's not allowed anymore. Uh, we're gonna, we want more stolen bases, so we're going to make the bases bigger. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think pitchers have gotten too good and they throw too hard all the time. So we're going to put in a pitch clock, which makes them have to pitch every X number of seconds so they can't throw max effort every pitch. Mm-hmm. And so, like, you've started to see the sport kind of, you know, they they released patch notes for baseball this year to try and, like, balance out some of these, like, ruthless efficiencies. Yeah, just got nerf pitchers. They did. Honestly, in the 60s, Andrew, they, um, they lowered the mound, I think. It was in the 60s or early 70s because pitchers were too good. <laughs> Okay. And the fact that they the mound the angle that the mound was on was giving them an unfair advantage, so they lowered the mound to kind of flatten the way that pitches approached the hitter. 
Um, so this is not new. It is just interesting that like we're starting to see the twenty like the tale of all the stuff that started in Moneyball really come to a head, where the game is like I don't know what if we like made some changes, but also the teams have all access to all the data that started coming up out of Moneyball and they're certainly using it to collude against players for contracts. That's certainly mm-hmm. a thing that's happening and was happening before the recent contract negotiations. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It's an interesting book. You get a lot, like, the thing that Lewis is good at is, like, I'm discussing this concept. Let me zoom in specifically on a player that, like, exhibits that whole deal. Right. And we've covered, like, the pitfalls of that. Um, but everything but everything is more memorable if you can make it specific in some way. Like, if you're just explaining in a vacuum this concept of finding players who, like, who can get on base reliably without putting a face on it, I'm going to just I'm going to find it easier to lose focus, especially if I am not like primed to know about or care about the subject that he's talking yeah, about. Yeah. So he's very he's very good at finding these human stories, which is what I think makes the book work um, and what made it so memorable. Uh, and yet it's also underpinned by this like, wouldn't you, one weird trick to fix <laughs> yeah. baseball? Like it has that energy to it. Um, what's kind of fascinating is that it doesn't even cover the most successful parts of the A's in that whole like five to ten year stretch. Uh, that that reading about the book that has been the most interesting takeaway for me. So okay. that sounds like our uh, our Moneyball episode, Andrew. That's Moneyball. Uh, so thanks to everybody who's listening, who joined us on the stream. Uh, if you have a favorite baseball thing you want to share with us, or if you're confused about what baseball is after my rambling explanation of various concepts, you can send us an email overduepod at gmail.com or hit us up on social media at overduepod. Our theme song is composed by Nick Larangis. And if folks want to know more about the show, where do they go? Overduepodcast.com is our internet website. Up there we have the current month's schedule for the books that we have read and are going to read. We have all of our past episodes. We have like a little web player you can use if you don't like listen on your phone. It's, it's a lot of stuff. Uh, we also have a link to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash overdue pod. Our patrons have been here in the chat with us, keeping us company, asking questions, sometimes making funnier jokes than us that we can then say on the air and get partial credit for. Yep. <laughs> uh, if you want to sit in on future live streams, uh, again, patreon.com slash overdue pod. This is one of the rewards that we offer. You can also access our discord server and a bunch of other stuff. Um, we also uh, put out, our long read projects there early uh, right now. It is, uh, we're winding down on Sandman, uh, which I need to actually, after we get off the mic, I need to edit this month's episode of it and put it up. Uh, and we are going to start reading uh, Emily Wilson's translation of the Iliad pretty soon. Yeah. Very exciting. Uh, Very so exciting. thank you. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, everybody who's listening. Thanks, Greg, for reading about baseball and telling me about it. Happy to do it. I love baseball. It's a fun game. It's fun to root for the Phillies right now. They're not the best team, but they're a whole bunch of delightful himbos uh, who love playing baseball together. They're easy to root for. Mm-hmm. So um, That's it, everybody. Andrew, take us out of here. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. And until we talk to you next time, statistically, I would insist that you try to be happy. <laughs>
That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>